Chemistry and compatibility. Proverbs. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her, let her works praise her inner gates. So often in our class, what we'll do, we'll, the, the week before we work through this lesson, we talk about uh, a woman who fears the Lord. That's why you see that the last week's class, I forgot to take that line out, <laughs> in, in our curriculum when we talk through dating in our class. Uh, and then we say this week, but today it's just me with you this hour, we want to talk about beauty and charm. That is, the Bible's take on what the world thinks is most important in a spouse. So charm and beauty. Now, if you're a woman, we're going to also think equivalent to what you might be tempted to prioritize. Uh, charm and beauty. What do we do with these categories? Uh, do we ignore them and pretend they don't exist? You know, we all know, Christian circles, character matters. <laughs> we talk about character matters. Charm is bad, character's good. <laughs> That's what you hear, basically, when it comes to dating stuff. And yet, that can be really confusing, <laughs> because I'm attracted to someone. <laughs> I really enjoy having a conversation with this guy or this gal. There really does seem to be kind of chemistry in our conversation. So if I say, you know, charm is bad and character is good, what do I do with that? <laughs> well, we want to think about these things. We need to understand the value God places on things like beauty and charm, on chemistry and compatibility, which are what I want to talk to you about in this hour. Only when we can see things through God's eyes can we value them appropriately? So what I want to do is be careful and not fall into a lot of the traps that the world has to offer on these topics and help us to think through some of those things, but be especially careful to think, well, what does God think about this? Because I certainly hear what the culture says, what single men and women should do when it comes to dating and attraction and charm and beauty. But does God have something to say? I think he does. I think he does. And that's what I want to talk about uh, in, in our time together. So we're going to think through chemistry, you know, the way you're attracted to a person physically, spiritually, and emotionally, emotionally, and compatibility. The, the kind of idea of like, do we fit with one another? Does, do, does our relationship work together as some kind of partnership? And think about what does the Bible have to say and then the Bible does have to say something. What are the implications for us overall? So we'll start with, with chemistry. What does the Bible say about chemistry? Anyone who thinks that the Bible doesn't value passion and chemistry has not read the Bible. <laughs> you just haven't read the book that is so awkward to hear read in public services. You know what I'm talking about, right? What book am I talking about? Song of Songs. <laughs> you know, you squirm in your chair. <laughs> you think, oh, are we allowed to do this in church? <laughs> I didn't know the Bible talks about body parts. Is that really true? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Listen to a Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 16, what the bride says. His mouth is most sweet, and he's altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Or chapter 4, verse 9. You've captivated my heart, my sister and my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. So what do you think? Bloodless? Passionless? I don't think so. (laughs) If you read through the entire book of Song of Songs, you hear, you feel, you you even see in the text chemistry. (laughs) You you see the attraction. You, You see the desire. And desire in marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a centerpiece of marriage. There is an emotional attraction here, a desire to be together and be close. And there's a physical attraction here. The two crave to be together. They want to be one with one another. Well then, it's in the Bible, right? Well, it's got to be okay, right? (laughs) This is what we should be looking for, right? Well, the emotional spark where it's the first date turns into six hours of staring into their eyes at a coffee shop. That's what we're talking about, right? Or the physical spark where you just can't get out of your mind how he or she looks. Or is it the the dating takeaway from Song of Songs? Is that what we're meant to take away? Uh, The Bible says it's okay for us to have all those kinds of reactions to things. Is that what we're looking for? Of course Some good character, fear of the Lord thrown in for good measure, attracted to the guy, and then we'll be okay. Well, Scripture sounds two cautionary notes as we think about chemistry. First caution you see there, number one. Chemistry is more cultured than something that's innate in a relationship. One thing that should make us pause is that quite often when the Bible describes desire in marriage, It uses imperative language, not aspirational language. In other words, desire, even sexual desire, isn't something you look for. It's something that's commanded of you. Listen to the words from Proverbs 5 gives to young husbands. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the life of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Not look for someone who intoxicates you with her love, but see that wife of yours be intoxicated with her. Imperative, not aspirational language. Now talk to a wise Christian couple and you hear that attraction is not simply something they started with, it's something they built over time. It's something that even grows in the course of marriage. Now, my wife is shy when I do this, but you know, my kids are at this stage where when I walk in and I walk over and I kiss my wife, all the girls are like, ew, please stop, Dad. <laughs> and what does that make me do? It makes me kiss her again, just to gross them out. <laughs> 
But, you know, we, we celebrate our 20th anniversary in October. And I've said to her, there have been more than one moment where I look across at her and think, wow, you're even more attractive than when we met. Because her beauty has grown over 20 years. Now, our body parts don't look the same anymore. <laughs> what we looked like 20 years ago, when I pull up that picture, I go, wow, we were really young. <laughs> we were much more fit, and there was a lot more hair. <laughs> There's a big difference now. Yet, her beauty has just grown. Yes, I was attracted to my wife when we were dating, but how much more now that I've seen her beauty and loyalty and commitment and faithfulness over two decades. We have moved across the country. We have raised a bunch of kids. We've walked through very hard seasons, and we've done it all together. So the Washington Post had this story of a man whose wife hired a photographer to take some racy photos of her and then airbrush all out all of her flaws and she presented this to her husband as a gift to him. He wrote a letter to the photographer and he had it published in the post. And here's an excerpt and I think it beautifully makes my point. When I opened the album that she gave me, my heart sank. These pictures, while they're beautiful, and you are clearly a very talented photographer, they're not my wife. You made every one of her, quote, flaws, end quote, disappear. And while I'm sure this is exactly what she asked you to do, it took away everything that makes up our life. When you took away her stretch marks, you took away the documentation of my children. And when you took away her wrinkles, you took away over two decades of our laughter and our worries. And when you took away her cellulite, you took away her love of baking and all the goodies we've eaten over the years. I'm not telling you all of this to make you feel horrible. You're just doing your job, and I get that. But I'm actually writing you to thank you. Seeing these images made me realize that I honestly do not tell my wife enough how much I love her and adore her just as she is. She hears it so seldom that she actually thought that these photoshopped images are what I wanted and needed her to look like. I have to do better, and for the rest of my days, I'm going to celebrate her and all of her imperfections. Thanks for the reminder. What a sweet letter. Reading it again brings tears to my eyes. This is a far more realistic description of attraction and chemistry in marriage. More than anything you see on the silver screen that tries to portray for you that one magical moment when you see the person across the room and think, that must be the one. Remember what I said? It's more enculturated than innate. <laughs> Look at what happens as you grow 
in your love for one another and your attraction to one another over the course of years together. Number two, attraction is not always good. (laughs) Can anyone tell me when the word desire first appears in Scripture? Genesis? Yeah, good. Tell me your name. Christian, good. Exactly, Christian. Genesis 3, 6. Eve saw the fruit was desirable, and she took it and ate it. And sometimes we're attracted to the wrong things. So the deep desire you feel for the person you're dating, it's not necessarily a trustworthy guide. Culture says, let your heart be your guide. What does Scripture say? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Desire for that person you're dating is good, but something we should view with a degree of skepticism. So, what should we do? Uh, What do we do with these two cautionary notes that I've sounded in terms of attraction and chemistry? Let me give you four implications of this. Number one, mature in what you're attracted to. You shouldn't and frankly can't ignore attraction when you're dating. It's a natural part of who we are. God has woven that into who we are as sexual beings to be attracted to others. But ideally, over time, you're increasingly attracted to what is most worthy in that person. Some of this will come naturally as you grow in Christ. Becoming more Christ-like will renovate your desires. As you grow in wisdom, you'll grow in what you're attracted to. And as we identify idols in your life, like an idolatry of comfort or of sex or of money, of security, for example, you'll grow in what you're attracted to. But growth in what you're attracted to does involve being really careful about what influences you. For example, pornography and lust horribly distorts our desires. Pornography pornifies our desires so that we consume and misuse and objectify someone of the opposite sex. And what happens then is as we enter into relationships, that doesn't just magically disappear because that's cultivated our desires in a certain direction. And what we need then, if we have been addicted, is a renovation of our desires. God needs to redeem them so we become attuned to what God's plan is for sexuality. Just because you've been conditioned by porn something that you have struggled with doesn't mean that after you have worked through the addiction, you're okay. (laughs) Because your desires may be lingering and you have to do something about them. Beyond influences like, uh, obviously sinful, like pornography, be wary about the things you watch and read how they condition what you're attracted to. So trashy novels, A particular movie are totally unnecessary if it is something that's going to attract you to the wrong kinds of things. And if you've held on to an image of your future spouse in terms of some kind of idyllic idyllic body type or idyllic looking person, 
you're going to run into trouble when you actually get into dating relationships and married. You need to be really careful. No amount of self-talk will keep you from being attracted to the wrong things. You need to sanctify what you're attracted to now. Don't wait for later on. Now's the time to take responsibility for your attractions and the desires. Our motto of how to fill your thought life shouldn't be Google's. Don't be evil, but God's. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Number two, when you're attracted to someone, ask yourself what you're attracted to in them. Ideally, make that into a conversation with a good friend. You know, if you're in love, it'll be fun to have that conversation, and sometimes your friends will get sick of it because you'll talk about it all the time and talk about that person all of the time. But do recognize the idols that are in that attraction. Sometimes you're going to, in a desire for control or for pleasure, to keep people happy, uh, lust for success, for money, for comfort, you're going to get attracted to the wrong things. And those things are often behind the attraction we feel. We need to identify some of the idols that compete with God and repent of them. Number three, along those lines, be wary of dating if you have gaping holes in your contentedness as a Christian. Are there huge idols in your life that you're grappling with? Then now may not be the time in which you need to put yourself in a relationship. The best time to be in a relationship is when you're content in Christ. You know why? The ups and downs of a relationship won't rattle your cage because you've got a solid anchor. So if you walk in with deep discontent about the Christian life, dating is just going to make it even more rocky. So deal with your discontentment. Don't presume that dating and then marriage is going to be an easy answer for that discontentment. If I can only get the guy or the gal, if we can only have a home together in a future, if I can only have children, then I will be okay. No, 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 no. And did I say no, by the way? (laughs) No, deal with that discontentment. Number four, don't jump ahead physically in your relationship. Song of Song extols desire in marriage. But listen to the bride's advice for those who aren't married yet. Chapter 2, verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Okay, I recognize that a little cuddling on a couch may not necessarily be sinful. But what does it do? It awakens the desires that are intended to head in a particular direction. Once you open the Pandora's box of desire, it's going to be really hard to put it back in that box. So you just need to be really careful on the front end. And those desires are going to be seriously complicated 
complicate any kind of question of whether you're attracted to a person because as you let those desires get out of control, it'll confuse the whole conversation. So, what does the Bible say now about compatibility? Shifting gears. Leaving attraction aside, let's look at the virtue of what the world extols, which is compatibility. For many, this is what they're looking for. Looking for a spouse in which there's a good fit. We seem to be an obvious compatible fit with one another, and therefore we must be able to do life together. So just like with chemistry, the Bible gives us some good thoughts on what to think about when it comes to compatibility. So what's a bad view of compatibility? Well, it's a view that, according to the National Marriage Project, is our, a culture's main view of a compatibility. Above all, survey respondents said, compatibility means someone who shows, quote, a willingness to take me as I am and not change me, end quote. Someone who will fit into my life as it is. As one man put it, if you are truly compatible, then you don't have to change. Well, there's a basic problem with this. You know what the problem is? God's plan for marriage is that it will change you. It will sanctify you. It will upend you. It will do a lot to you. Marriage, like every other Christian friendship, has the great goal of Colossians 1.28, that we may present every Christian mature in Christ. And a key purpose in a husband laying down his wife, his life for his wife, is that he might be changed. Or of a wife being washed over by the word, so that she is without spot or wrinkle or blemish, so that she might be changed. Marriage will change you. That is a fact. So if you enter in with the world's notion of somebody who just happens to fit with me, and so therefore we must be good partners, and will take me as it is, and not expect anything out of me, well, you are in trouble. And you are likely in that first year to end up in Brian or Tom's office. <laughs> so think for a moment about how you may have brought into uh, the idea of compatibility uh, the world's perspective. Are you looking for someone where the two of you just naturally fit? Where do you both love the same things and maybe agree on the same things and have a lot of things in uh, common interests, and so it just seems like we naturally fit together. Our relationship where you just get to be you. Those are fine, and in fact, if that happens to work out, that's great. We have a lot of same common interests, and you really like a lot of the same things, but just recognize that's not what your marriage will be if you get married. Marriage will change you. But does that mean we need to abandon compatibility as a virtue in a relationship? Quite to the contrary. In fact, at the beginning of Genesis, where God introduces the idea of marriage, what we see is that marriage is about compatibility, just a different kind of compatibility. 
Eve was made as a helper fit for Adam, who completes him and who complements him. And the Bible's idea of a spouse who is compatible with you isn't so much someone who will leave you as you are, but someone who will complete you. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to discover this person you're dating is one who will complete you? Well, in Genesis 2, it, it is a completion for a purpose, isn't it? Completion not simply so that Adam and Eve can feel nice and complete, but so that Adam can do what God asks him to do. It's a compatibility with a purpose for ministry. So let's think through that. What is compatibility for the purpose of ministry? I think the guiding framework that's most useful for us is what Paul offers us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's advice to the unmarried. Verses 32 to 35. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he'll please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how he'll please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's quite clear. The marriage agenda, or the anti-marriage agenda here, uh, he has no marriage agenda or anti-marriage uh, marriage agenda. No restraints in either direction. He simply wants us to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the goal in verse 35. An undivided devotion to the Lord. So if you remain single... What should you be doing? You should have an undivided devotion to the Lord. If you get married, what should you be doing? You should have an undivided devotion to the Lord. We, we should serve the Lord when we're married, but we're going to potentially serve the Lord together rather than apart. That's biblical compatibility. And all this is about service to the Lord. So let me lay out for you what compatibility is not, mainly, and then lay out for you some examples of what, what compatibility can be. So first, what, what compatibility mainly is it? This is a simple concept that a lot of Christian couples grab onto. We should get married if we can do more for the Lord together than apart. It, it's something often our staff pastors will say in wedding sermons. It's a good thing for us. But I think this principle is often misunderstood. Hey, we can do a lot together if we get married rather than if we had stayed single. So a dating couple asks themselves, how can we figure out if we're better together than apart? Well, I guess we should do ministry together. So let's see what this looks like. So they clean up things around the church for several hours together to answer the question. Or they go and evangelize and the conversation goes really well or they have hospitality and they have a great time doing together and having folks over 
and they go out and they tell the gospel to others who are struggling with homelessness in the city. And they do all these things, and it goes really well. And they said, well, does that mean we're better together than apart? (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm glad for all those things that they did together as they're dating and figuring out. But if that's the main way we think about biblical compatibility or about Eve being a helper fit for Adam, I think we're totally misunderstanding how this works. As a married couple, you will certainly do ministry together, and if you're still going to spend, but you're still going to spend a lot of time in life apart. And you'll spend very little of your life doing things at least the hypothetical couple just mentioned in ministry together, especially in the first decade or two, all of the time. So what then is compatibility? The main way that a married couple is more devoted to the Lord together than apart isn't so much how much or what we do together that we're allowed to do together, that we can do together, but who marriage allows them to be. We too easily think of ministry as a small number of events scattered across a calendar, and we're going to get all those events done together. But in reality, it's everything we do. What's 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So let me give you a few categories for what it looks like, for how Genesis 2 and 1 Corinthians 7 typically work out in marriage, what it looks like for a couple to complete each other. Number one, marriage teaches you to love a stranger. That is, to love your spouse. Who you thought you knew really well on your wedding day? Well, guess what? All the weeks of preparation, all the months of dating, all the premarital sessions, all the things you do cannot get you prepared for all the things you'll learn on the other side of the altar. So, you know, um, Dave Harvey, in his new marriage book, has this great word picture. He has this picture, he talks about a couple um, with all their bags going through Homeland Security together. I moderate a little bit. If, If I had a PowerPoint, what I would have done is I would have taken a picture of a couple standing up there, in their wedding attire with the pastor, all smiles, up here on the platform after the ceremony. And then I would have taken a second picture and would have surround them with luggage. Because in those decades of marriage, they're going to unpack all kinds of things that didn't come out in their dating relationship. Now, you might think, wow, that sounds scary. Maybe I just say stingle. But no, it's in the safety and security of a permanent covenant that a lot of the most fearful things in life will actually come out. And so this is normal for marriage in building a relationship with one another and growing closer to one another. So you marry a stranger. Second, marriage gives you insight from a different perspective. My goodness, I can't tell you how many things in life that my, wa- my wife is much more wiser than I am. I mean, it comes down to things like one day we're sitting around talking, and I played a lot of pickup basketball, pickup football, 
pick up baseball with my best friends in high school. And she was, she was much more of an athlete than I was. And as we were talking about baseball, talking about how I always swung the ball and I could never connect the bat with the ball. And she said, well, did you watch the ball coming towards the plate or did you just swing? I thought, oh, <laughs> that's why I missed all these years. <laughs> or there's a night, you know, as we're doing our bedtime routine with our kids and I'm helping my daughter get to bed and she was emotional and frustrated and I was just having a really hard time and I didn't get what was going on. And so I did the best I could as Papa Bear and then left. And my wife goes, I explained it to my wife, and she goes, she's jealous of her sister. Really? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> so the next day I said, what was going on? And my daughter says, I was jealous of my sister. Oh, why didn't you just tell me that? I can't tell you how many times I go on and on and on down the list that my wife has offered a different perspective on dozens and dozens of things that have made me not only a better father and a better husband, but a better Christian and a better pastor. Number three, marriage brings the strengths of two different people to every challenge. So I make friends much more naturally and much faster. <laughs> I'm an extrovert, external processor. I'm not scared to walk up to a stranger and strike up a conversation. It's pretty fairly normal. So my girls and my wife all feel awkward when we're in the dog park together with our dog because I'll just, I'll get to know all the dogs and all the owners. <laughs> <laughs> I have a great time talking with these, dog, uh, these owners and getting to know these dogs. <laughs> I'm not talking to the dogs, I'm talking to the owners. <laughs> but I love dogs, and so I'll go pet up any, pet any dog and then look up to the owner and say, what kind of dog, how long you had him? That's our dog, and I'll start up a conversation. My daughters hate it. <laughs> my wife, though, you know, my wife, she doesn't make a lot of relationships. She makes a few relationships, and you saw the last hours I teared up about the stuff about Lee. She goes really deep. So I will go far and wide. <laughs> I'll have a pretty wide range of people. But I get frustrated because I have to work at the depth because I'm spreading myself too thin. She'll be much more careful about spreading herself too thin and be thoughtful about her investment and work much harder at going deep. You know, we're two very different people, and we bring our strengths together. So when, you know, it comes to hospitality and ministry, I'm the one dragging people into our home every week. I'm the extrovert that says, hey, you, you, and you, you're coming over on Wednesday night. See you on Wednesday, and you bring dessert. <laughs> and she's glad for it, because she knows that's a strength of mine. I'm the guy who's inviting strangers from the dog park over to our home. So we can evangelize people. So, you know, th th that's the kind of thing that I bring. What does she bring? 
She brings insight into our children in ways that I could have never figured out on my own. She brings depth of relationships that I had to learn from her as I watched her in the early years of our marriage. And ironically, I was the one training to be a counselor. (laughs) And yet I'm watching my wife go deep into certain relationships and teach me even what that looks like. Number four, marriage allows two people to raise a family. You know, as a father of children, this is perhaps the most obvious way that my wife completes me. Ephesians 6 clearly places the weight of raising children uh, on my shoulders. Uh, Genesis 2 clearly places the weight of provision on my shoulders too. Well, how can I do all that? Because my wife, like any Proverbs 31 woman, has chosen to come alongside of me and help me bear all these responsibilities. Given my responsibility as a dad, I can't imagine I could ever be a pastor if my wife didn't play such a huge role in raising our kids. I mean, I couldn't be here today if she wasn't managing all of our Saturday activities on her own. So she's very busy at home so that I could even be here with you and be busy with you. So it's worth noting that because the Bible's idea of compatibility is one of complementarity, this is going to look different for a man than for a woman. If you were to ask me how my wife and I complement each other, I point out how she makes up for the deficiencies in my character. She focuses her life on our home so that I can give attention to priorities outside of the home. She gives me wise advice and counsel. In other words, she's my helper. And if you were to ask her the same question, she'd probably point to how she feels I provide steady influence in her life, how I lead our home in a Godward direction. In other words, I lead. So as you ask the question, are we compatible, you need to think through also the lens of helping and leading within the marriage. So that's all basically I wanted to cover in terms of chemistry and compatibility. Any last questions before we end? So you said your church, a lot of single women, and you've written a book for single women. So I'm just curious, what would you say is one of the most common difficulties you hear from Christian women in dating or single women in dating? Yeah, I think one of the most common difficulties is in giving men the opportunity to initiate, having to wait and be patient. And so waiting well is hard, especially if you have a clear desire to be married. Because, you know, there's usually that guy that you're interested in, and you're dying over here if he's not paying any attention to you, let alone hoping he will actually ask you out. So learning how to wait patiently on the Lord as the Lord then brings possibilities to you. Now, you know, they use all kinds of phrases when they describe dating. Does that mean you just have to sit around, pray, and be passive? Now, I had a friend when, you know, he was out on a date with his now wife, and she was from a a conservative setting, and so she was really trying to be careful to guard her heart. And on that first date, he said to her, well, you can look like you're enjoying yourself if you really are. Because <laughs> she was so reserved and careful. 
I, I also um, am okay with like what they use the phrase, you know, rustling the leaves. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? If I'm at an event and I never talk to the guy, how's he ever supposed to know that, I, you know, I'm potentially want to have a friendship? <laughs> so go across the room and talk to him. You're not doing a disservice to the kingdom if you walk across the room and have the conversation. But if you set the precedent for the relationship, you're always the one initiating, then that's a problem. Because that then sets a precedent for the long-term relationship. So in the end, being patient, waiting, waiting especially on the Lord for Him to do what He asks you to do, but also, you know, doing what you can do within the providence of God and His kind circumstances to express interest and enjoy the dates when they come and do whatever you can to be faithful. What's your name, by the way? Mary. Mary. Great question, Mary. Hey, Deepak. I am dying to hear your thoughts on online dating. It seems wow. like that could be maybe, uh, maybe right, slanted yeah. towards our, uh, culture's understanding of yeah. compatibility and chemistry, yeah, okay, but it let's doesn't go for need it. to Ready? be. Okay, here we go. Online dating. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I've got a lot of friends who met their spouse through online dating. Is it a sin to date online? Certainly not. Uh, there, there are lots of different reasons why maybe online dating is an option. But here's a few thoughts on it. Number one, uh, if you are doing online dating and ignoring the other people within your own local church, that's a problem. That's a, a significant problem. Why would you date online when there are godly people within your own local church? So you need to first and foremost think about the brothers and sisters within your own congregation. That, 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 that's the thing that you need to make a priority, and you have to examine that first in that regard. Now, there could be a lot of circumstances in which potentially online dating could be an option, or let's just expand it to, say, like matchmaking. Somebody introduces you to someone else that they say you should possibly consider well, I think if, say, you meet someone and you begin to build a relationship, one, you need to be careful because an online profile can be a very small slice of who the person is. So you've got to be careful and patient and take your time and not rush into anything and not presume what you get online is what you're getting in real life. Which brings me to number two. As soon as you know it's actually going somewhere, you gotta begin to bring it into community. So I'll give you an example. Um, a young lady uh, gets fixed up with a, a young guy. They start talking long distance. Phone calls initially. I was from an era when people talked on the phone pretty regularly as the start of it. Exchanged letters rather than just emails. Uh, and then wrote emails and did other things. And then they get to a point where they're thinking, oh, might be going somewhere. So he asked, could he come visit? Interestingly, the first thing she did on the first weekend he came is not only set up a bunch of opportunities for him to meet the people who are closest to her, but she set up a meeting with me and Mark Dever one-on-one -on -one with this guy on his first visit. Well, that's pretty intimidating. I mean, I'm a sweet guy. Mark Dever's a larger-than-life personality. <laughs> but she said... You knowing my pastors from the very beginning, if this is going to go somewhere, 
is really important to me. Well, the, I thought it was a great picture of she wasn't wasting any time. I want the people who know me well to be involved in this from early on so that because we're doing this from a distance, we're doing this online, I need leadership involved and community involved to help me figure it out. Because there's rarely that magical moment where suddenly you realize, oh, this is the one. <laughs> Actually, what happens is there's a series of steps that happen and there's a lot of wisdom that's required to get there. And so you need community speaking in to help you figure this out. So sure, you could do online, but be careful about the slices of what you get. And as soon as it might be going somewhere, you got to bring it right into community. So the community can be engaged, give the wisdom you need, so that what I don't want is somebody to date online, for them to spend a lot of time with each other, maybe do quick visits with each other, suddenly get engaged, and the guy shows up and says, hey, so what's the deal with premarital counseling? And I have no idea who this person is. I, 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 might be, I might be saying like, well, great that you're engaged, but I need to know a little bit more <laughs> because I'm not ready to sign off on this for you to get married until, especially if I have to officiate, until I know a better sense of your relationship and who you guys are. That's what I'd say. Hi, I'm Catherine. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about when you're saying that compatibility is, um, this idea of being better together than apart and who we, we are becoming when you're talking about like the, um, the, the sort of four ways that like marriage can complete you. Like that seems really kind of general, like it could be true of any two Christians in a sense that get married. And obviously like on the other side of the altar, like that is like in obviously the case, but yeah. when you're trying to figure out, well, you know, is is it this stranger that I want to love? You know, like, yeah. how, can you just give some more thoughts? Along yeah, those lines? so that's a great question. It is true. There is a certain sense it could be two Christians. But if we think about the basic definition of marriage, uh, uh, the basic goals of marriage, Ephesians 5 is the one that everybody talks about because it's right there in the text, all, uh, which is we uh, as a, a couple are dim reflection of the grace of all marriages, Christ and the church. The one that not is nearly talked about as much as I think it should be is Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter um, chapter two twenty four uh, that we're one flesh with one another. You know what does that mean? Uh, the literal term means intercourse, but everybody takes the general sense of it of two individuals, our lives merged together, and there's an intimate unity of which sex is the centerpiece of it. It's the linchpin of it, and yet it's a merging of our lives in a kind of unity that is really unlike any other kind of unity that you'll ever experience. So that's what I mean. Don't schedule around a bunch of events, but as our life grows together in unity and oneness, we'll actually begin to shape our lives together and become more one with each other and more like each, not like more one with each other in who we are as a couple, and be able to then therefore have that as the foundation for how we then do everything together. That's essentially what, what I mean uh, by that. I mean, some of the word pictures that I find really helpful in beginning to describe 
the kind of unity and even the in-sync nature of this. So if you ever watch the Olympics and you see the figure skating dancing, and you see how after months upon months and months upon months of practicing, how in sync they are with one another. Every single move with one another. Where there has to be a considerable unity there in like-mindedness, in, in wor- learning to work together, in learning to you know, know each other in order to have that kind of oneness and unity with one another. So I, that's what I'd say in terms of putting some definition around the being with one another. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's the point of community. Like, you may have some sense of, oh, this is working out pretty good, but oftentimes it's like, but there's some things I'm uncertain about. And the reason why you have other people looking in and involved, and again, a plug for singles being involved with married, is because I want the married people to say, thumbs up, this is, this is really good, or to be honest with me and say, I'm not really sure about a couple of things. And that's how you have more certainty about whether it's a good thing or not. Then you had a question too. Yeah, just, um, this is something that's been a concern to me, is I've noticed statistically in this church we see a lot more single women than single men, and you seem to indicate that at your church also. What are your thoughts about where the men, where the young men are? (laughs) Well, that's a question for all of larger evangelicalism. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, there's a, we have a, we have a growing number of men, especially since we do a lot of training for pastoral ministry, who've shown up at our doors. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're, in general, I think if you look at the statistics, uh, women tend to flock to church much more than men do overall. So it's not just singles, but overall, if you, if you think about it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but I'm sure there's an article in Gospel Coalition about it somewhere. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Real quick before we go, my, my hope for this time together is that this would be a conversation starter. Single folks, our church loves you. We want to love you well. We want to know how to care for you well and have conversations like this, both among you as single folks, but also incorporating our leadership. Tom and Carol would love to go on a double date with you and that, that, that person you're interested in. Um, and us too. Uh, Honestly, though, we really, really would. That would be fun. Um, but my, my hope would be this would be a conversation starter. We, we, don't, we recognize there's a large group of you here, and there's many more that aren't here. We want to be able to care for you well, so I hope this is a step in that direction. To that end, I want to direct you guys. The, uh, the, the manuscript that Deepak was working through is from actually one of the classes that they've done at Capitol Hill. And you can get all of the manuscripts for this class, both the dating section and the singleness section, online at capbap.org. And if you look at their, their classes and their course seminars, you'll find more information there. And you can read through those other lessons. It was, there, were, there were, I think, 12 or 16 total from, uh, from for us to choose from. And it was really hard to do because there were so many that I'd like to be able to, to do all together. So we might have to have Deepak back sometime soon. But you guys can check that out. And I'd love it if, if that continued the discussion among y'all and, and, and with us as we long to serve you well.